if you didn't know, um, my wife Katie is a teacher, so she teaches high school math in Algonquin, and she often gets asked while she's teaching something, is this going to be on the test? Uh, which is kind of like asking, um, do I need to care about this? <laughs> uh, do I need to pay attention to this? Is this worth um, me listening to and learning? Like, is this going to be on the test? Because this is kind of boring, or it's kind of complicated, and I just kind of want to check out for a bit, and not, you know, not pay attention to that. Um, and when we come to the Bible, uh, we need to, we kind of have the same thing, like for our lives, what's going to be on the test? Like, is this going to be on the test? And as we go through uh, the Gospel according to Luke, and we're in chapters 9 through 19, and where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die. Um, we celebrate uh, Good Friday and Easter, where Jesus died and where he was resurrected. And that happens, you know, if we're kind of like in Jesus' time um, on the road to Jerusalem, it's like a week away or like two weeks away. Like it, I think somebody had said if he just walked straight there, it'd be like, you know, four or five days. Um, maybe he took a little longer because he had places he wanted to stop. You know, a week or two. He's on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to his death. Uh, and he's going up there with people that have committed to him, who are interested in him, or maybe some are still trying to figure him out, and he's stopping at people's places to eat and getting invited to dinners, uh, and he has discussions about, okay, what am I? what is the kingdom of God? That's what they're all excited about. That's what they all are hoping he's going to bring. And so he clarifies with people, this is what the kingdom is, this is who can get in on it, this is, you know, this is what it's like. And uh, the context that we're in, in this passage we're looking at, chapter 12, 35 to 53, Jesus is kind of alternating between the people he's teaching. He's sometimes teaching the crowd, sometimes he's talking to his critics, and sometimes he's talking to his committed disciples and his core disciples, and he kind of alternates between them. Like he's in somebody's house at one point, and then he's out in the crowd talking, and then somebody in the crowd uh, speaks up and is like, hey, he has a question, and then he talks to them, and then he goes back. And so he's just alternating who he's talking to, and he's covered a bunch of stuff, the right response to him, hypocrisy, uh, possessions, fearing God, not people, trusting God's care of us, uh, and acknowledging him before other people. And in all of his teaching, there's this sense of urgency. Uh, like He knows he's going to die, and he knows the conflict that is going to come um, for people who are following him. Because if they kill the teacher, if they kill the leader, what are they going to do to the followers? And so he has this urgency of, like, I want you guys to, to get this. Like, what's going on here? And I want you to be prepared for how to respond uh, after it comes. And in this passage today, uh, there's a theme the word come or coming uh, is repeated eight times. And so the theme is coming, or Jesus is coming. And if you didn't know this, Jesus, there's actually two times Jesus plans to come. He already came once, his first coming, the first century, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. And he taught people and he died on the cross and he was resurrected. And then he went back to the right hand of God the Father uh, in heaven. Uh, but he said, I am going to come again. There's going to be a second coming where he comes uh, to judge, judge the earth um, and separate the people who are true followers and those who have rejected him. And so he's going to come again. And when he does so, he's going to make all the brokenness of our world new. He's going to wash it clean. He's going to transform this world into a new creation. So there's his first coming and there's his second coming. Actually, I'll do it from your point of view. His first coming and his second coming. And we're here. We're in between and one way to think of it is that, actually I'll get into that a little later, um, a couple of verses down, but uh, so there's two comings of Jesus, and so he uh, has two parables here that he talks about his second coming. Um, what's going to happen then? What, do I, what does he want us to be doing when he comes again? And it's really, yeah, what do I want you to do until I come back? He's like the master of a household, telling people, this is what I want you to be doing when I come back. This is what I want to find you doing. 
And then he has another teaching, um, which wasn't read yet. I'm going to read it though later, about his first coming. It's like, what do I want you to be doing while I'm gone? And then what have I come to do now? And so it's like we're hearing Jesus' first coming and second coming today about both of them. And so you may be asking, well, why is this important? Why does this matter? And it might be, is this going to be on the test? You know, like, is this part of the test? Like, does this matter to me? Should I pay attention to this? And uh, the reality is that one day, every person will stand before Jesus. And he will grade our test. And so this matters a lot, that no person will not stand before Jesus. And he will grade our test. And Jesus, in this passage, tells us what is going to be on the test. And so this is very important to each of us. And so something for yourself to maybe consider if you have a bulletin or if you're like typing on your phone or whatever, just kind of mentally, um, I'm going to give you like 10 seconds. How do you know if you're pleasing Jesus? Not for you to answer out loud, but how do you know if you're pleasing Jesus? Like you get through this week and come to Saturday and you're just like, did I please Jesus this week? How do you know if you're pleasing Jesus? I'll just give you a couple of seconds to reflect on that. All right, so let's begin looking at the passage, Luke uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And this, uh, this section, like I said, is about Jesus' second coming. And the first thing he says that he wants us to be doing is to be ready. So verses 35 and 36, he says, Say, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And so he has this little parable about this is, you know, what I want you to think of it. This is what I want you to be doing. Uh, he says, be dressed for action. Uh, interestingly, that was a, that maybe sparked people's minds about, oh, God, there was a time in our history where God told us to be dressed for action, and it was actually in the Exodus. Uh, the people are enslaved to Egypt. God says, uh, Moses, I want you to go in and free my people, the people of Israel, bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And I'm going to have you be my spokesperson to Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt. And he says, uh, the last, very last thing he does is they have the Passover meal, which interestingly, that's what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate, to having the pilgrimage to Jerusalem with everyone else to be going. Um, and the Passover meal, they're supposed to have this lamb that they cook, but they're supposed to be dressed for action, ready to, to leave their house at a moment's notice while they're eating it. This wasn't a like, you know, take off your sandals and kind of unload. This was like, no, you've got to be ready to leave because God was going to have them leaving very soon. And so Jesus could be saying, like, a new exodus is coming. Uh, when I come again, it's going to be once again bringing you out of slavery, bringing you out of the world that is pushing you down and oppressing you uh, and destroying you. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be ready when I come back because it's going to be time to get going. I'm going to lead you out of slavery. And he says, you know, have your lamps burning so that if your master comes, you know, you can use the lamps to light the way. You're not in the dark fumbling around. And he says, be like men waiting for their master coming home from a wedding feast. And, you know, wedding feasts for us are like, you know, it's like a couple hours. Uh, but it could be um, a couple days or up, often it's up to a week of like the wedding celebration. So it's like, hey, servants, like I'm going to the wedding feast. I'm not sure when I'll be back, but I want you to be ready uh, when I do come back. And I want you to be ready to open the door uh, and serve me. And so then he says in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
So they haven't fallen asleep, but they're staying alert. He finds them awake. They're prepared, ready. They're waiting expectantly for their master. And then he says, Truly I say to you, he, meaning the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So he's saying, what am I going to do for those servants that I find ready? The master serves the servants. And we'll come back to that. That's a very interesting picture that he gives us. Um, and then he says, verse 39, but, sorry, last name, but, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken uh, into. You may, and you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so he's saying, okay, I'm going to be gone, and you don't know when I'm coming back. Um, it's, you know, it's, the time is unknown. It's certain that he is coming back, but it's uncertain of when he's coming back, just like a thief. Like, nobody plans for a thief to break in their house. Like, oh, thief's going to break into my house tonight at 1 a.m., so I'm going to be sitting there ready with my baseball bat that I have under our bed. It's really there. So warning, if you're the thief, uh, I've got a baseball bat going on. So uh, we, don't, we don't plan it, right? You don't put it in your schedule. Like, oh, oh the thief's coming. Let me... Uh, I'll enter that into my calendar. Okay, now I'm a little, I have a little alert that goes off an hour before the thief comes. No, we don't know when the thief comes. So he's saying, in the same way, the Son of Man, referring to himself, uh, is going to come back at a time that you did not plan, that a time is unknown. And the be ready part, um, maybe it's like, well, how in the world are we supposed to prepare for that? And why is it a time unknown? Um, and I think a good image for this is like, we know we're in the fourth quarter, but there's no time clock. It's like the game could end at any moment, uh, but we just don't know, we don't know how long, how long is left on the clock. And it's like, so we need to be ready. We've got to play, uh, you know, like the game is about to end, but we don't know exactly when it is going to end. So his first thing he says, be ready. And then in verses 41 through 48, his message is, uh, be faithful. And so 41, it says, Peter said, uh, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? So it's kind of like, well, who's this for? Who's this lesson for? Who, who are the servants in this story? Is it us, you know, your disciples? Or is it like the religious leaders that you just had a dinner with and they criticize you? Or is it for this crowd, these people who aren't your disciples yet? Like, who is this for? Who should, uh, who should be paying attention to this? Um, and then he answers with another parable. Uh, so verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? And so he has here, okay, I'm gonna, the master's going for some reason, and he's saying, okay, this servant, I want you to manage the household long gone, including giving people their food rations, you know, the other servants. Basically, he sets this servant to be a servant of the other servants, like they're going to be managing the household, getting out the food uh, and whatnot. And so he says, well, who would be a faithful and wise manager? Like, he set this person over his house to manage it. Who would be considered a faithful and wise manager? And the answer is in verse 43. He says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And so the master told him what to do. And the uh, faithful and wise servant who's managing is the one that he finds doing what he told them when he comes back. Uh, the servant is faithful to the responsibilities that the master gave while he's gone. In verse 44, he says, what will I do for that servant? Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so the servant was given charge of some of the master's possessions in order to hand it out to the other servants. And now he says, wow, you, you served well in this position. You're faithful and wise. 
So I'm going to give you even more that now you get to manage and be set over uh, for the benefit of others. It gives them even more responsibility and resources. But there's another but. The first one had a but. This one has a but too. Verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him uh, with the unfaithful. And so he's saying, well, what if a servant doesn't do what the master said to do? Uh, And this is, he gives, he's going to give three degrees of unfaithfulness or foolish ways to respond. And this first one is really they're insubordinate. Insubordinate to the the Lord's will, to the master's will. Instead of serving the other servants, they abuse uh, and use the resources for themselves. You know, it's not, this isn't just like, oh, they made a few mistakes. It's like, no, it's like, oh, he's gone. I'm going to beat the rest of the servants and I'm going to eat all their food and drink that I'm supposed to be giving to them. And then, you know, maybe they're hoping to, like, if we use the test language, like, I'm just going to cram the night before the master's returning. It's like, no, he's going to return at a time you don't know. Um, and so he's, this servant is abusing, not serving, uh, but lording it over them. I've got this authority. I'm in charge of the food. I'm in charge of all you, and I'm going to do what I want. Um, and Jesus, you know, he, he says in other passages, he says, um, you know, the, the rulers, the kings of the, you know, the, the world, they lord it over people. They just use their authority to get people to do what they want. And Jesus says, no, that's not going to be, that's not how it's going to work in this kingdom. Like, if you want to be great in this kingdom, you become a servant to other people. But this servant does not serve others, they serve themselves. And what will the master do? It says, uh, the master will cut them up and throw them with the unfaithful. And the cut up language um, is probably hyperbolic because how can you throw them with the unfaithful if they're cut up? But, you know, we might say things like, if you do that one more time, like, I'm going to kill you, which by it we mean we're not actually going to kill a person. It's just like, I'm so, you know, mad that I just need to figure out what's the, like, worst thing I can say, like, the most serious thing I can say, or maybe here, I don't really necessarily hear people say this in the real world, but I see it on movies where people will be like, I will bury you, I will destroy you, I will end you. You ever said, I hope you haven't said that to anybody, but I've only seen you like in movies. But you know, it's like, well, you didn't really bury the person alive. You didn't really, you know, end them or destroy them. It's like, I'm going to destroy your career. I'm going to make it so you can't get hired anywhere. It's like, I'm just going to do something so serious, there's no coming back from it. And it says that they're put with the unfaithful. So they're cut up and cut off. Uh, and you can look back a couple of passages where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he just has all these woes to them. Woe to you all are. Uh, you guys are acting like you love God, but you really just love yourselves. You're like cups that have been cleaned on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. And so he's saying, like, you guys are doing the opposite of what you've been told to do. God's will is that you be loving God and loving other people, and you're not doing either of those. You're just loving yourselves. You're loving the position you have. And so these could be somebody that are in his, uh, who Jesus is thinking of. And in the Old Testament, there's a passage, uh, Numbers 15, 30 through 31, Actually, I'm just, there's just a couple verses that I'm going to refer to them twice. Um, but there's actually commands for people that know what to do and don't do it, and people who don't know what to do, uh, and so they don't do it. So uh, looking at this in verse 30, Numbers 15:30, The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So the 
a sin with a high hand. I've seen some people depict this as like um, God has told you what to do, and the high hand is basically like flipping him off. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the commands, but I'm just not going to do it. They call it presumptuous sins or intentional sins or sin with the high hand in the Old Testament. And the second servant, the second degree of unfaithfulness, uh, he starts talking about in verse, uh, let's see, 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. So the first person was totally insubordinate, just did the opposite of what the master told him to do. And this is someone who's ignoring it, not necessarily doing the opposite, but ignoring it. So you have insubordinate, and then you have ignoring the Lord's will, knowingly disobedient. They know what they're supposed to do, but they're knowingly not doing it. Um, and they're severely disciplined. And this can remind us of a verse like from James chapter 4, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so that's James 4, 17, if you want to write it down. Lastly, there's the ignorant uh, servant. And so this would be in verse uh, 48, the first part. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And so this person is unknowingly disobedient. The previous ones were knowingly disobedient. This person is unknowingly disobedient. And that's also addressed in Numbers chapter 15, verse 27 to 29. It says, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. And so even though this person sins unintentionally, um, it needs to get paid for. The sacrifices, those words, sacrifice and atonement, that's basically something needs to pay for this so you can be forgiven. And so it's like, I sinned unintentionally, I didn't know, but okay, yeah, we're still going to do the sacrifice. A payment needs to be made so you can be off the hook for this disobedience. In verse second half of verse 48, he says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So people, the servants, are evaluated according to what they did with what they knew. Uh, how much did you know? You're going to be evaluated according to that. How much of the Lord's will did you know, and how much of it did you uh, keep and follow? More knowledge of it, greater expectations, and greater consequences. And we already met, so you can be insubordinate to the Lord's will, you can be ignoring the Lord's will, you can be ignorant of the Lord's will, or you can be in line with the Lord's will, which is what we saw before. Um, the slave or the servants who uh, did what the master said. He comes back and finds them doing as he told them to do, doing his will. Um, and we might ask, well, what is the Lord's will? These are little stories. So, like, you know, none of us has other servants that we are, like, you know, having to serve, like, in these stories. But, I mean, all, all the time, God's will boils down to two things, love God and love others. It just boils down to love. Uh, we love God and love others. That's how we will be evaluated. The master wanted the servant to serve him by serving the other servants. I put you over them, and you show your love for me by loving these servants, taking care of them, serving them. The way you serve me is by serving these servants that I put you in charge of. But they, the ones who are disobedient love themselves instead. And in the one case, he blesses them with more resources to serve others. You've loved well, uh, so here's some more resources. Do it, do it even more, and you'll keep it up. 
and that's the reward for that servant. And I want to address just two issues that may uh, come up in here, because the, one of the, the first issue is um, judgment. And if you're like me, when we read that, like he's going to cut them up uh, and cut, you know, throw them with the unfaithful. And then even the other two, where they're being disciplined, it's like, what? That one didn't even know. Uh, this one didn't even know what to do, but they still got disciplined. And we might think, wow, that escalated quickly. Um, God, you know, isn't the master kind of overreacting? Isn't it a little harsh, a little unfair? Like, I mean, they didn't do that. You know, it's not that bad that they get cut up. Um, but instead of thinking God is overreacting, overreacting, we should assume that we are underreacting. Whenever we think, wow, God, or wow, Jesus, you're overreacting there, you should assume that means I'm underreacting. Um, we have a, we lack, and when we underreact, we lack a right sense of the badness of sin and the goodness of God. That we really don't have a grasp on how bad our sin is. Otherwise, we wouldn't be underreacting. We wouldn't think God is going too far. And we really don't have a true sense of how good God is and how separate those two things are. There's the badness of our sin and the goodness of God. And those two things cannot go together. And if you're like, God, you're being a little too harsh, a little too severe, it's like, okay, um, I probably don't really understand how good you are and how bad my disobedience or my sin is. And the cross shows us both. It shows us both the badness of our sin and the goodness of God, that God would send his own son to take our penalty in our place. And that shows, wow, that's so horrendous that... uh, he gets crucified, naked, ashamed, uh, and killed, and tr- so mistreated. Like, it's so ugly. It's so bad. And we have to say, yes, when we start feeling a glimpse of how bad Jesus' death was, we're starting to get uh, maybe, I don't know, half a percent of how bad our sin actually is. And then we get to saying, but, but you're saying he did it for me? Like, and we start to feel overwhelmed with, like, God, you love me. Why would you do that for me? Like, and we start to, if we get to a place where it's like, I can't even believe that God would do this for me. We're starting to get a glimpse of the badness of our sin and the goodness of our God. And so let's let God teach us how bad sin is and what our right response to it ought to be. A second issue is how we read parables. And important, when you read these little stories, like, you know, the master and the servants, and um, when Jesus tells these stories, it's important to ask what point is being made. What point is being made? Because our temptation uh, is to look, we want every detail to correspond to reality in some way. You know, so maybe it's the master equals God, his household equals the kingdom of God, or heaven, or salvation. Um, and so then we read the second story as, okay, well, one of them didn't make it because he was super bad, and so he gets caught off and thrown with the unfaithful. Three did make it uh, to heaven, um, but two of them got disciplined, they got punished when they were there, but the one made it and you know, was praised by the master. Um, I think that would be, that's possible what's happening. Um, but we tend to read in lots of details into parables, and we want each part to correspond to reality in some way, um, and often they don't. They usually have one point that's being made, and each detail doesn't you know, equal something in the real world. And so the point Jesus is making is, who will Jesus bless when he returns? This is the point he's making. Who will the master bless when he returns? And the answer is the servant he finds doing his will. Who will Jesus bless when he returns? It's the servant he finds doing his will. And so you know, Peter asks, well, who's this for? 
are you telling these parables to? Are you like, like, surely we're obeying you, right? We're following you all around. You must be telling it to these crowds, right? That, hey, guys, be ready, get your act together, be good servants. And Jesus doesn't tell them, yeah, you're right, I'm telling it to them. Or, yeah, you're right, I'm telling you. He just answers with another story, basically saying, I'm telling this to whoever wants to be a faithful servant. Like, if you want to be a faithful servant, this story's for you. And that includes the disciples and includes whoever's walking around with them, listening to them. And then in verses 49 through 53, so those are about what Jesus wants to find us doing when he comes again. Verses 49 through 53 are about uh, what Jesus has come to do in his first coming. And these might, you know, you might find these odd too when we read it. Verses 49 and 50 first. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So it's like what he's come to do, and he's desiring that it would be accomplished. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to die. And in that death, it's going to show who's really on God's side and who isn't. There's a whole lot of people claiming they are on God's side, that they love God. And what's going to be demonstrated in Jerusalem when Jesus uh, is beaten and judged, I mean, and put on an unfair trial, a rigged trial, and then he's thrown on a cross, is the religious leaders who are instigating this are saying, like, our God came back to us and we didn't want him. Basically is what happened. Jesus is God coming to his people. That God said, I would come back. And the Son of God took on flesh, came back to his people, and the people didn't want him. And so it's like, I just want this all to get separated out. Like, there's people pretending to love God, there's people who say they're for God's kingdom, but they're really loving themselves, they're really for their own kingdom. And I want to see this separated out so people can just see what it is. And he says, verse 51 through 53... Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, or da- yeah, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Oh, we might be thinking, wait, Jesus, I thought, I, we just said it a little bit ago, we're supposed to love people, right? And often people will say, well, I just want to be all about what Jesus was. Like he just accepts people, where they are, accepts people as they are, loves people unconditionally. Um, I can just come as I am to him, which is all true if we define it properly, is that Jesus takes us as we are, um, but to be loved by him means he doesn't leave us as we are. And so a passage like this might be like, what do you mean no peace? People are going to be divided. Um, he's like, you think I've come to bring peace? No, division's going to happen. And I, I, this lines up well with, you know, often it's like, what don't you talk about at family dinners? Anybody? What would you say? Politics. Politics. What's the other big one? Religion. religion. Politics and religion. Why? Because it defi- divides mother against uh, husband. You know, what, what are the divisions he said? Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, fathers against sons. It divides people. And it's like, just don't talk about it because we don't want to fight. Because people start to fight about whom they support, uh, what they believe. Like, this is what I believe, and like, you've got to get in line with me. Or like, how can you support that person? How can you vote uh, for that person you know, in this election? And Jesus is saying, if you're coming around the dinner table and saying, you're like, why didn't we see you at uh, you know, synagogue this week? Oh, well, um, Jesus is my rabbi now. Um, he's my God. He's my Lord. He's who I'm following. Like, what's that going to do to a traditional Jewish family getting together uh, as they start talking about stuff? And it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. 
I still believe that. I think it's been fulfilled. All the stuff you're talking about in the Old Testament, I believe it's been fulfilled in this guy. That's going to get a conversation going. That's talking about uh, your beliefs at the most core level with the people who are very religious. And so he's saying families are going to divide over this. You're going to be in different kingdoms, and therefore people are going to be opposed to you, whether you want it or not. And if we went back to chapter 3, John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And he said, Jesus is going to baptize people with fire. He's going to separate people with his winnowing fork. The chaff are going to be burned in unquenchable fire. So he's saying, Jesus is going to separate this out. He's going to, people are going to really, you're really going to see where people are at with God. So Jesus, on his way back to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem, God's coming back to his people. What's he going to find them doing when he comes back? Jesus wants to separate people out who love God and who don't. And people that are holding on to their kingdom, they're going to kill them so that they can hold on to it, to their status and their possessions. But then for us, you know, thinking about that family dinner table, that Jesus is like, stuff's going to get you know, heated because people aren't going to like um, what you believe. Now, are we willing to let our relationship with Jesus be the reason we lose other relationships? I think often we kind of like, you know, just let's tone back to Jesus so that people don't get you know, upset with us. Um, but are we, I'm not saying that all of you would be at risk of losing a relationship, but are we willing to lose other relationships because of our relationship with Jesus? Um, are we willing to let our love for Jesus be the reason we lose other people's love for us? Are we willing to lose the world to gain Jesus? So how do we make this personal? Our question was, well, is this going to be on the test? And anything you're asking that about, the answer is Yes. <laughs> All of life is going to be on the test. That's what we hand in to Jesus to grade everything. And we're taking the test now. We don't know when Jesus will come back to grade it. He can come back at any time and say, all right, time to hand in your tests um, so I can grade them. But we know the criteria by which he will grade it, by which he will evaluate our life. Did we do what he told us to do? Were we good servants? A good servant does what the master said to do, even if he's absent. And so then I titled this message, I felt like it was the best way to make it applicable, is what if Jesus came back today? What would he find you? What would he find us as a church, as a people? What would he find us doing? Would he find us doing his will? Doing what he said in his absence? Um, Would you, would we be proud to hand in our life for him to grade? Would we say, yes, I'm so glad you're back, Jesus. I've been living it for you. And I'm just so excited to see you. Or we'd be like, oh no, uh, Jesus is here. And my test is not going to be graded very well. And so we know what Jesus wants, um, but why would we ever give it to him? Why would we give him? Why would we live in service to somebody else, to become somebody else's servant? Like none of us, I think, probably put that on our like dreams for our life. I don't know, like your vision board, if you do those things. Like my dream is like, I'm going to be someone else's servant, right? That's usually not how we think. But So why would we become someone else's servant. Well, in the first parable, he talks about what he would do for the servant he finds ready for his return. Uh, do you remember the image? Um, is that he? Let me just reread it. So blessed are those servants whom the, this is verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And we should be saying, wait, what? <laughs> that isn't quite what I was expecting. He's like, I want you to be ready when I get back. Uh, and it's like, okay, yeah, Master wants us to get back. 
Uh, we're going to open the door for him, take his coat. I'm going to you know, sit down, let us take your shoes off. We've got a little bite for you to eat. We thought you might be kind of hungry. Um, but what happens is he comes in. Oh, yes, I'm so glad you're all ready. Now, you sit down. Um, you guys, oh, what? You know, the servant's like, what's going on? You guys sit down. Um, and he goes, changes his clothes out of his wedding attire and puts on like a servant attire, puts on a servant towel and gets down at their feet. I mean, the scene actually happens, John 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And you remember Peter's reaction, Lord, you wash my feet? Like, no, how, how is this? So they'd be astounded um, that why is the master getting, it's just weird, you know, like, what? what are you doing? Like, this is a reversal of what we thought this relationship was. But he's, it's just ridiculous that we would have this image that Jesus, the glorious king, uh, at whose uh, name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, comes and puts on a servant's robe or whatever it is and gets down and washes our feet. Like, could you even accept that? Like, okay, I'm glad you're all here now. Now you sit down. Oh, okay. What? And he comes. Uh, we would react the same way as Peter. Like, I don't, I don't get this. How are, you, how are you doing this for me? Becomes our table waiter. It's not just there's going to be a party. But he's the waiter at the party. Like, can I get you anything else? Um, you have, a, you know, have enough. Like, your feet feel good. You know, like he's the one serving us. So it's a crazy picture. And of course, he—it's not only at his second coming that he serves us, but he's already served us um, at his first coming, the cross. You go to Luke 22. Jesus uses the same image. He says, "Who's greater, the person who's reclining at table to eat, or the person who's serving the person reclining at the table to eat?" And obvious, it's, he says. Well, it's the one who's reclining. He's like, but I'm among you as one who serves. I'm not coming as the one who's sitting at the table having you serve me. I've come as the one who serves. Mark 10, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. And we're never perfect servants. We never will be. We'll never be totally faithful servants. But the reality is Jesus died for our unfaithfulness already. He paid for it. And so we serve someone who has already served us beyond anything that we could give to him. So that was the picture of, uh, and the picture in the second parable is the master makes the servant a servant of servants. But who's the greatest servant of servants? Uh, king of kings, lord of lords, servant of servants, uh, the highest king, the highest lord, the lowest servant. And it's like, these things don't go together. How can Jesus be the highest king and the lowest servant? That just doesn't make sense. But he tells his disciples, greatness in my kingdom is not about being served, but about serving. The greatest of all is the person who serves the most and the lowest. And I've always just loved uh, the words from Amazing Love. I think that was uh, Newsboys? Anybody? No? Newsboys? Just me. Okay. Their, their, their line was, Amazing Love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And it's just like, yeah, how, how could this be? This doesn't make any sense. Why would the king die for us to save us and to serve us? And Jesus is a servant to his servants. And so how does Jesus get us to serve him? Does he demand it? Serve me. Do it. That's what, you need. That's what I made you for. No. Uh, does he beg us? Please, 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 please serve me. Like, just please do this for me. No. He doesn't beg us. He serves us, he loves us, he lays down his life for us. And we serve him because he first served us. He shows himself to be the kind of person who's worthy of our trust, of our devotion, of giving our lives in service to. He doesn't demand it, he doesn't beg it, but he shows himself that he's worthy of giving our lives to in service. We never will outserve Jesus. He's served us and loved us more 
then we will ever serve and love him. And so for the faithful servant, Jesus' coming is something to look forward to. It's like, yes, I'm going to see the one who loved me and gave himself for me face to face and the one who's always giving himself in loving service to me. And I think, you know, when we think about like, I mean, it's very clear that every person, including believers, will stand before Jesus to be, um, have our life evaluated, to be rewarded according to our deeds. Um, I have one pastor say I liked his uh, distinction, is that believers stand before Jesus not for condemnation, um, but for commendation. Is that it's not being judged whether we're going to be saved, it's for standing before him to be evaluated, to be commended, for like, yes, this is what you did with your life. And if we're ever like, oh, that's so scary, I don't want to stand before him, like, what if I'm doing it wrong? And I like to just think of, like, what's it like to be evaluated by someone who loved you and died for you? Died for all your failures, for all your sins, for all those times that you didn't serve him well. What's it like to be evaluated um, by that kind of person who loved us and gave himself for us? That's just totally different than someone who's like, um, it's all about your performance. Um, Jesus is a very loving king. So why would we ever give our lives in service to Jesus? Well, Jesus is why. Jesus is why we would give our lives in service to him. And everyone is looking for something worthy to give our lives to. And there's a real joy when you find it. It's like, I have something bigger than myself, something beyond me, something worthy uh, to be involved in and give myself to. And there's joy in that. Let me pray and then we're going to... Uh, we'll be getting, We'll take the Lord's Supper. We'll have a little reflection before it, though. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this passage. It's just one of those things we don't think about very often. But Lord, would you, would you set our eyes, our hearts, on that future that you plan to bring to us? Would you let us be faithful servants who care most about what you will find us doing when you return? Your son's name, we pray. Amen.